Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham. Today, we have a special guest with us, uh, Travis Rogers, who is a member of our church um, and actually is the one who introduced the topic we'll be talking about today. He recommended it, um, and he's going to be helping us out as we go through this discussion from Dr. Vince Bontu. Um, And with that, Sean, you want to kick us off on what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, so uh, we're going to be watching uh, parts of a lecture from uh, Dr. Vince Bontu, and uh, the title of the uh, lecture is uh, something to the effect of... Um, is Christianity the white man's religion? Exactly. Is Christianity the white man's religion? Now, uh, we would agree with him in his, his ultimate point, uh, because he's, he says, no, it's not the uh, white man's religion, but his response and some of the problems he sees, we wouldn't agree on, and in fact, his, his response to, well, how do we demonstrate Christianity is not the white man's religion is ultimately, I think, dangerous. So that's, uh, that's why we feel uh, that it's necessary to talk about this topic today. Yeah, and this was a lecture that Dr. Bantu, who is a graduate of Wheaton College, he gives this lecture to students, I believe it's students at Wheaton College, um, on this issue. Um, Wheaton College, I believe, is actually where Billy Graham went to school. Yeah. which I thought was very interesting. So you can start to see some of this um, liberal theology starting to permeate slowly, even more so into these once conservative universities. Um, but yeah, we're going to attack that today. We're going to be going through some timestamps. We've done this format before um, and then discussing these topics that we find in the video of that. I will share my screen. We will dive right in. Oh, come on, Dan. There, we, there go. we go. Yeah, I have to select the computer sound thing. Mm-hmm. I'm this. All right, can you guys see that okay? Yep. All right. I would even go so far as to say it's the biggest issue. I would go so far as to say that the 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 cultural association, the identity politic of associating Christianity with whiteness, westernness, Europeanness, whatever, that that is probably the single greatest obstacle to the spread of the gospel in the world today. Because whether you're talking about Native Americans, whether you're talking about African Americans, whether you're talking about uh, Africans, whether you're talking about Middle Eastern, Asian, Chinese, Japanese, when you're dealing with non-Christians in those cultures, that before we even get to the claims of Jesus, before we even get to Christianity or or the scripture, you, it, 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 the, the message of the gospel has been so wrapped in Eurocentric Western packaging that that's all that can be seen. And so we don't even we don't even get into Jesus and who Jesus is, because that thing that you call Christianity is to me associated with a people group that's antithetical to my people group. I can't become a Christian because that is against my native identity. It's against my African identity. It's against my Middle Eastern identity. Right. So there's a cultural blockade or my friend Soon Chan Ra at North Park Seminary calls it the Western white cultural captivity of the church. The reality that Christianity is so associated with Western identity that the reality, the the logical contrast to that is that people who don't fit that cultural identity, then the idea is that, well, then I don't fit that religious identity because the religion and the culture go hand in hand. So this is definitely a problem. And and I would say that Certainly, this is not the greatest hindrance to the gospel. Ultimately, we believe that God is the one who saves. God is the one who uh, changes hearts. 
And the gospel is the standard for how we are to reach cultures. I mean, you look at the Jews and the Gentiles in the New Testament, particularly the situation found in the book of Galatians. And there certainly were stumbling blocks there between the two. You had Jews wanting to um, impose their old ceremonial rites from the old law onto Gentiles. And then you had Gentiles who were just trying to coming into the church under the gospel and like, what in the world's going on? There is this great divide here, but Paul's understanding of how they were to deal with these issues was through the gospel. The gospel was the standard that transformed cultures, not the other way around. It wasn't this cultural identity that needed to be there or that stood in the way. And then the gospel somehow came along. It was the gospel that was going to break those barriers. Um, so I, I think the premise of his argument here is wrong and doesn't really get to the heart of what the gospel does. Yeah, I'd also like to point out that um, it might be harder from when you're witnessing to someone who's from a monotheistic background, but polytheism is, is very in, uh, easy. Uh, we know from Romans 1 that all men know there is a God. Yep. Um, so when they say to us, oh, your, 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 uh, your religion is antithetical to my culture or my identity, what, whatever the, the terminology might be, uh, that's a lie. And it's, well, it's a distracting tactic. It's, it's, they're not, they're not being 100% honest. And the, the answer is not to play to that. It's to confront them on it. Uh, we don't want to, we don't want to be like, oh, okay, well, I guess you have a point. Let's reshape uh, everything. Uh, we, as we'll get into it, we don't want to bring unnecessarily, unnecessary cultural baggage in our witness. That's certainly true. But um, that should not be the driving method of evangelization the evangelization is the gospel and uh regardless of your cultural identity you need to throw whatever it is uh, away that would keep you from christ um jesus says that if you love mother father whatever uh more than me then you're not going to be of me essentially so to be in that uh to basically say oh it's against my cultural identity well your, your culture, that's not a reason to not obey the gospel. I would actually also add to that. It's true. There are cultural sensitivities out there. Everybody, you just look at it outside of Christianity too. When you're leading people, everybody has a different carrot that gets dangled in front of them because they all are looking for different motivating factors. That's from a humanism type viewpoint and how we function with, you know, with other people, that's not from a spiritual perspective. When you look at it from a perspective that's in line with scripture, that is not us. That's God. And God can overcome any barrier. God can overcome any obstacle. Should we remain true and faithful to the scripture? Absolutely. Do we need to learn how to speak with people and make that connection? Absolutely. Look at Paul, quoted philosophers of his day in order to make that connection. So there is a certain aspect where you use that culture to make that connection but you're not using that, that culture as what ties the gospel to it. The gospel is totally standalone and can overcome anything and has overcome anything and everything that it's come into contact with. Why? Because it's not just words that are coming out of our mouth. It's not just us relating with people. It is literally God and the spirit changing people despite culture, not along with their culture. That doesn't say you have to forsake your culture, but that does mean that we need to look at it where culture is not the number one problem and the number one hindrance. The number one hindrance is sin in our world. 
The number one hindrance is how we attach ourselves to sin, how we desire to do the will of our father, the devil, have we not been regenerated by the spirit first. And I think until we come to a proper understanding of that fact right there, everything else is just chaff getting in the way. Yep, that's exactly right. Yep, the gospel has to be the standard, not our culture, or we're going to run into all kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I point to the, Gal- the church in Galatia. They had the same problem. And if you want to talk about a rift between ethnic groups, you look at the Jews and the Gentiles. Um, it was so bad that even you had the apostle Peter, who walked with Christ personally, being a hypocrite by sitting with the Jews in one instance and then sitting with the Gentiles in another instance, and he had to be corrected by Paul. Um, so Paul's point was that the gospel is what saves. The gospel is what unites everybody around it, what, regardless of your background. And that's really the point we want to drive home today in, uh, in this episode today. In a, another interview is the most destructive thing that's taken place in the black community has been the religions that's always been introduced to us. That's a fact. Explain that. Well, oftentimes when we look at religion, they don't give us an opportunity to study the historicity of the place or the geographical locale from which the information derives. I oftentimes find that many of the religions that our people make subscriptions to, they was confronted with those religions in light of them being oppressed by the very people who presented the information to them. And when I ask people, when was the Islam introduced to us as a people, or when was the Christianity introduced to us as a people, or when was the Judaism introduced to us as a people, or just the books in general, we oftentimes find that it was introduced to us while being in a state of servitude. And when I ask, can you show me when it's introduced to our people, void of being in a state of servitude, it's moot. The opportunity to suggest to me otherwise is moot. When we ask, when we do it. All right. So the the argument could be made, what what about the slaves in the early church? Weren't most of those people oppressed and taken from their lands and, and the Westerners enforcing their culture upon them? I mean, that that's what happened with a lot of those slaves. That's where they came from. They would they were conquered peoples and they had to learn to adapt into a culture that was not their own. But Paul assumes that there are slaves in the new church. He gives instructions to those slaves they could have used the same argument yet paul in galatians three twenty eight says that there's neither slave nor free scythian jew gentile etc so again the gospel is the standard and he wanted people to be unified under that banner and as noted before there uh from travis there are definitely things we don't want to you know it's cultural sensitivities that we are to have for sure um First Corinthians nine twenty two. We're not to cause a stumbling block for unbelievers, uh, but at the end of the day, Paul is not really concerned about cultural differences as the standard. He, he acknowledges them and he understands they are there, but when it comes to salvation and being unified in Christ, it is the gospel. It is the gospel that is preached. It is the gospel that unifies, um, and that's really where. Um, we need to have our focus, not having culture as being the standard as uh, and seeing religion 
or Christianity as being oppressive as this man seems to uh, imply, um, but actually having a proper understanding of it through the light of the gospel. And Travis, I think you had some things you want to add to this as well. Yeah, I think where Brother Polite there is talking about it being a moot point, I don't really, on the one hand, don't understand why it would be a moot point. On the other hand, wholeheartedly agree it's absolutely a moot point, but for a very different reason. In the end, he didn't hear of the gospel through oppression. He didn't hear of the gospel through captivity. Nobody today in the United States of America is captive to anything other than our sinful nature. You know, so with that, unless there was an oral tradition passed down from the slaves you know, of over 100 years ago down through the generations, explicitly saying, Christianity is the white man's religion, and we heard about it forced upon us through captivity. Stay away. If that, unless that's been passed down through oral tradition from generation to generation to generation, he heard about it the same way his next door neighbor is going to hear about it, the same way I heard about it. Somebody cared enough to share the gospel with us. At that point, do we say the past has ruined everything and I can't possibly hear that? Or are we hearing it in the same context that everybody else is hearing it? And again, you know, we do have to pay attention to those cultural sensitivities. We are influenced by certain things. You know, what I might get out of hearing a song, for instance, somebody else in a different cultural setting might get a different message out of it. But in the end, God's message is not relative. It's absolute. And it is 100% consistent truth, always has been, always will be. So, again, it's a moot point only because we have absolute truth here. It doesn't matter what kind of bondage anybody was in in the past because we're not in that bondage now. The only bondage is bondage to Satan in sin. Yeah, and it really goes back to having a proper anthropology. I don't know what Dr. Bantu's um, anthropology or theology of man is, um, but it doesn't seem that he has a very high view of man's sin in his condition. I don't get that impression based on what he's talking about here. Uh, no, no. I, I would like to point out that uh, Dr. Bantu is not 100% in agreement with uh, Plight. It doesn't appear that right. Way. Yeah, he's, right. he's using it as an example of, oh, see, here's someone that just associates Christianity with whiteness and oppression. Uh, he's he's going to go on to say, well, that's not always true because we have uh, Christians in Africa from the beginning of Christianity, and it has nothing to do with uh, oppression. And he's, he's right on that fact, obviously. But I don't think that fundamentally answers, or it's it's just saying this person is factually wrong. It's He's still uh, believing that his premise is true, that, oh, if we had heard it from uh, only during times of oppression, then, well, it can't be true. Um, and I'd like to actually read... Uh, read a little bit of uh, Philippians, Philippians 1, starting at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein do rejoice, yeah, and will rejoice. So what's Paul saying here? Some people aren't preaching Christ for the right reasons. Um, I'm not even sure if he's saying these are believers that are in sin or unbelievers that are preaching Christ. But regardless of whether or not they're preaching for good reasons, people are going to be saved from it. 
and that is good. Christ is preached. So if the person comes to me and says, the only reason my ancestors believed was because they were enslaved, I say, A, no, they believed because of God, but B, uh, even, yes, they were oppressed. Um, the, the people that did that were absolutely wicked. Man stealing is a wicked crime. Uh, but I praise God that they believed and they heard the gospel in some way because it's a far, it's a far better fate to avoid hell and be enslaved in, on earth for a little bit of time uh, and, go, uh, and to go to God in glory than to suffer hell. So um, regardless of whether or not uh, it came in the uh, context of oppression. It is still a good thing and still to be listened to. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you have, and again, that goes back to the supremacy of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation and God's power uh, triumphs over uh, cultural differences. I mean, we're going to have people that are, the scripture says that it's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from different cultural backgrounds that are going to come as a result of the gospel in spite of its methodology of being preached because the powers in the gospel and the power of God is, is what saves through the gospel. Articulated even using Hellenistic terminology. Like when John in John one refers to Jesus as the logos using platonic terminology that was not operative in Jewish Aramaic culture but in a way to contextualize and explain the gospel in ways that would make sense to Hellenistic folks. So, so you have examples of Hellenized Roman Christianity from the beginning. And folks like Justin Martyr and, and Tertullian and all these other kind of apologists who wrote in Greek and Latin were also, would also continue. Origen, Clement of Alexandria, these folks were deeply influenced by Platonism and Hellenism. And, and you have these kind of examples. The problem, though, is that, at, uh, or the reality in the first centuries of the church, though, is that there was no idea of Hellenistic or Roman or Western dominance in Christianity. There was, there, there was examples of it, but it was one of many viable options, right? You could, have, you, you could have your Christianity that was a little bit more Hellenistic, but you could also have your Christianity that was a little bit more Syriac, a little more Aramaic, a little more Middle Eastern, that was deeply uh, rooted in poetic and uh, Semitic and rabbinic culture of, of, you know, kind of the uh, Western and Northwestern Palestinian regions where they spoke Syriac. And so you had multiple options, but it wasn't until the fourth century where now you start to have Christianity really become synonymous with Roman identity. When Constantine uh, allegedly becomes a Christian and begins to promote Christianity in the Roman Empire and begins to, uh, begins to start to persecute pagan Roman traditional religion, pagan religion in Roman Empire. And so at that point, and then he convenes the Council of Nicaea, which you guys church, took church history probably, or some of you ain't got there yet, but you know, this is what's known as the first, uh, ec, you know, first large kind of ecumenical council, and the, the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus is decided on that Jesus is homoousios with God the Father, um, which is great. That's, I believe that. All right. Travis, you want to address this one? Yeah, it's... First of all, me having been all over the world after 20 years of the Navy, I've seen cultures, multiple types of cultures. I've worshipped with believers in Ukraine. I've worshipped with believers in Japan, Korea, United States, of course, so on and so forth. And something we all have in common is, yeah, there's certain nuances within their worship that are going to kind of be synonymous with what's going on in their culture. But their culture is not defining their worship. 
It's just simply them with their culture embracing God. And that's something because they embrace God and the absolute truth of scripture. I embrace God and the absolute truth of scripture. And because the same spirit dwells within both of us, the spirit isn't giving them one message and leading them one way and then leading me in a complete opposite direction because our cultures are different. The spirit leads us together to worship together. Now, the idea that, you know, Hellenistic and, you know, there's this type and that type and the Logos. Well, if you think the Logos in John, when was that written? That was what, like 80 to 90 AD, only roughly 50 years after the death of Christ. So if we're talking only 50 years later, and that is the word that God chose to implement. You know, if we truly believe that all scripture is theonoustos, you know, the breath of God, God breathed, then God explicitly chose to use that word for his scripture. And I believe God that there's a purpose for all of that. And that it wasn't just a random usage because of some culture that was out there. That was what God chose to use only 50 years later, you know, and then his idea of wrapping in Constantine who didn't even supposedly, you know, convert to Christianity till 312 AD. Yeah. And it, that's such a time gap in there. We're talking over 300 years since God chose to use a Hellenistic word to when Constantine was on the scene implementing things. So to say that Constantine was the big push behind all of that, and you know, it doesn't really make any sense because again, there's over a 300 year gap. And to try to use that argument, all it really does is minimize the very important fact that all scripture is God breathed. Yeah. Um, God chose that word. So we can, use we can look to the meaning of that word to understand what it is god's communicating if you start making oh well that's a word chosen for a cultural context all of a sudden you can start playing with the definition of words it's like well our culture would view it this way and all of a sudden you've subtly undermined uh the uh truth and power of scripture because well you're, you're 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 getting to assign meaning to it that wasn't there god chose that word therefore the meaning that's commonly to ascribe to it, whether or not it's Hellenistic or not, is the one that we should go with. I also don't know that he's necessarily factually even correct with his assertion. I believe the Septuagint actually, uh, when it's translating the word word in the Old Testament, will use logos. And obviously we, we see Jesus in the Old Testament as the word. So uh, to say that it's John that was writing to a, a an audience to a Hellenistic audience to use that. I think he probably, uh, he already had that word in his mind. Uh, and it's just a connection to the old Testament. Yeah. And it really, this goes back to, to what your hermeneutical methodology is going to be, right? We want to know what the author actually meant when he wrote the words, not what our culture is going to impose it. That's really anachronism. If you're going to use that form of methodology for interpreting scripture. We want to know exactly what did John mean when he wrote Logos and ultimately what did God mean when he inspired John to write it. So that having, you can see his hermeneutical methodology coming out in, in these words that he's saying. And I don't think he has a very high view of scripture as well. He talks about it and he talks about like, especially with the deity of Christ um, as being consistent with scripture. And as I pause it here, he was saying he believes that Jesus is God and things like that. But the scriptures kind of put off to the side and there's no real hermeneutical grounding for his reasoning. It's just a historical 
uh, grounding for supposedly that he's using to make his point. And that I think is a failed presupposition from the beginning. There's reasons because Christianity is seen as that is antithetical to our, our, our identity of who we are. And so I'm talking to these students and they're like, they're literally have some of them have been cast out of their families because they became Christian. Literally, some of their chiefs have said, you are no longer part of the tribe because you are a Christian. And that's the white man's religion that put us in mission schools and kicked us off of our land. Right. And so that's that same di- dynamic of cultural alienation when a people group. And this is something that the dominant culture may not always be able to fully understand when someone is made to feel like I can either follow Jesus or be who I am culturally. So this is a false dichotomy. So he, he doesn't exactly say, OK, why were those people kicked out? You know, in a in an Indian pagan culture, you might have this pagan idolatry that's associated with it and they say you're a christian and they kick you out well that's part of what it means to be a christian if that's the case right um it, it's like uh the the verse that you put here um travis matthew 10 34 36 come peace to uh do not think that i came to bring peace on earth i did not come to bring peace but a sword for i came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household this is the normal way of life for a Christian. Um, and it might, I mean, it's going to obviously in certain cultures show itself more, but there is going to be this, uh, there's going to be a division between the pagan roots of a culture you came from and the new Christian and the new belief system in Christ that you have embraced and have come to. That's a reality that Jesus made clear that we have to make a choice between our culture and families and following him. Um, so while we don't believe that we throw all culture out, if we're thrown out of our culture because of our faith in Christ, uh, that is a good thing. And Jesus says that those who are persecuted for me will have reward in heaven for it. So he's creating this false dichotomy here that it's either culture or Christ, and that's a bad. And he's saying that's a bad thing. And you know, with that as well, if you really think about it, what was Jesus quoting? He was quoting Micah. You know, so that was something that God, you know, even in the Old Testament revealed this was going to be a method that he uses, you know, to when he draws people to himself, you know, as believers. Yeah, and it's, there's going to be strained relationships within families. Not all. Thankfully, I'm very thankful that my parents embraced me as, you know, being a Christian. And it wasn't until later that, you know, my dad came to faith before he passed away. You know, so, you know, some families will be just fine. In fact, I would say that is actually God's normal means of drawing new believers is through godly families, the raising their children in the fear of the Lord. But that isn't always going to be the case. And I'm also thankful that God doesn't limit those whom he calls to only households like that. So you might have some cultures that do have totem poles from their religion or do have onks, things we'll see later on in this video, or people that are just devout atheists and everything from just simply apathy when it comes to God to actual anger when it comes to God. And then their child, you know, for instance, all, you know, is being called and is regenerated and given faith. There's going to be strained relationships there. And that's where it comes down to what does that, you know, new convert do? Do they say, well, this is antithetical to my culture and therefore I can't really embrace it and then just prove that they were a false convert. Or if they're a true convert, what's going to happen is they're going to say, yes, this is antithetical to my culture. But guess what? My culture was wrong. Everything about it was wrong. 
you know, and that's not, again, not saying you're forsaking all your culture in the process, but anything within that culture that was contrary to what God's word says, and I'm not talking through a biased interpretation like some in the past had to try to justify slavery, because there's also wrong interpretations. Yeah, and those I would argue were cultural interpretations as well. I'm talking about a clear, you know, and fair, it's trying to be as unbiased as possible interpretation of the scriptures and of the intentional wording that God has used. God told us all the way back in the Old Testament, reiterated by Jesus in the New Testament, there's going to be strained relationships. And if it was true back then, it's going to be true today. And something we need to keep in mind is that might just be one of the normal means that God is using to separate his children from the rest of the world. Sean, you want to add anything to that? Nope, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) The divinity of Christ is being talked about, and they're deciding as Jesus, you know, how do we talk about his humanity and his divinity? And and the the Roman church uh, decides that Jesus is one person with two natures. Well, that, that particular way of talking about Jesus didn't really work for many of the Christians who had already been growing in Africa and in the Middle East and in parts of Asia. That didn't really make sense. Uh, and, and, and to them, it felt like they were saying there are two different Jesuses, right? That's not what, you know, the, the Western church was saying, but that's what it sounded like to them. So they said, well, we don't really agree with that. But what happened was the Roman church said, well, you, hear, you have to agree with that or you're a heretic. Um, and then so even to this day, a lot of us as evangelicals, we might hear about some of these Christians who are still around today, Coptic, Ethiopian, uh, Armenian, Syrian Orthodox. And we just get told this narrative like they're heretics. They don't really believe Jesus was divine. And nine times out of ten, someone who says that has never actually read a primary text written by uh, an Egyptian or Syrian Christian, which they would find out clearly they believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human, right? They just don't want to use this language of two natures because that's problematic to them. And it doesn't even work in a lot of the languages. Like in Ethiopian, for example, there's not two different words for person and nature, like one person, two natures. Well, that makes sense in Greek, but that don't make sense in Ethiopian. That sounds like you're saying there's two different Jesus. So the Roman Catholic Church, one, did not exist at the time of the Council of Nicaea. Um, so there's I think that. when he says Roman Church, I, I guess he means a Constantine's Church or something maybe, associated with that. Because, maybe, but... You no, know, he's a Roman emperor. But yeah, the, the people that are dealing with this are really the, 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 the Greek-speaking churches, the Syriac churches, like that. It's going on on that side. I wouldn't really necessarily associate with Rome. You're right, right. But yeah, I mean, they, they didn't really decide it at all. I mean, they just, what they were doing was recognizing the truth that had already been laid out in scripture. Now, again, what is this guy's standard? What is Dr. Bantu's standard for figuring out what theology is and how that should be interpreted? Right now, he's using a cultural lens to do that. And as we've noted already, if you have a universal truth, which is that Jesus is the son of God, he is the God man, he is God. Um, the same as, has the same essence as the Father. If you believe that, that's what Scripture teaches, and that transcends time and space. And that it doesn't matter whether you have a limitation in in a certain language. You simply adjust your language to meet that requirement. That's what we've done. And, and Travis, you brought up a good example of the different Greek words for love. Yeah, Greek, it's, a Greek has what? different versions of what love, gape, filio, that we don't translate into our language necessarily but we make it work yeah it's you know i was talking with uh, with a good friend of mine and he brought up you know 
the point of hypostatic union. And in here, Dr. Bantu, you know, bringing up, you know, another example, you don't limit yourself based off of a limitation in your language. Yeah, exactly that. Love. We have love. We don't have, you know, all those other variations that the Greeks have. But that doesn't mean we forsake their meaning and say, you know, how dare those Greeks try to impose their culture upon us? You know, we need to reject that and embrace our culture instead, where we have one one word. No, instead, we figure out ways to overcome it. We haven't invented words in this case, like we did with Trinity, you know, where it's three, one. You know, a word was literally made up in order to overcome a deficiency. In our case, we still just use love, but we have descriptors and we have ways to describe what are those other types of familial love, you know, uh, lustful love, brotherly love, so on and so forth. So we don't forsake it. And he says in there, they fully believe in the divinity, but they reject certain phrases. There's no reason to reject it any more than there is for us to reject using agape or phileo. Why? Because those are actually in scripture, the words that were used by God himself. Now, yeah, yeah, hypostatic union is not something we see in scripture, but it is a very, very, you know, concise way of summarizing who Jesus was in his natures. So I'm not going to say somebody has to say the words hypostatic union, right? but if you reject the doctrine and the meaning of hypostatic union and try to say, you know, well, we don't even want to make up a word before it, or we don't want to use a series of words to describe it. At that point, you're putting your culture over the truth of doctrinal clarity. Yeah, let's let's put it this way. I don't believe I ever heard the word propitiation prior to becoming a Christian. Uh, I, I did read through the Bible prior to becoming a Christian, so I'm sure I encountered it at some point, but I don't think I ever looked it up. I didn't know what it meant until somebody in the church had to explain it to me. So, and that that's part of the gospel right there. Uh, so if you're a Christian, you're going to seek out knowledge that um, is part of your Christian life. It's, there's, there's no issue with that. Um, and we make up words all the time. The word computer didn't exist, you know, 100 years ago, and now it does. Uh, so it's not necessarily an issue. Uh, in regards to the, uh, the Ethiopian... Uh, Orthodox churches. Um, I don't know enough about, I, I looked into it briefly, whether or not they are actually uh, basically saying the same thing in different words. And I don't think I'm, they, it, their statement could be interpreted in an Orthodox way. So I'm not going to say, oh yeah, they're heretics because of this. Uh, I would like to point out though, and I think it'll be important going forward because he keeps calling uh, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church Christian and Oh, we, we want to import all these Ethiopian symbols and blah, blah, blah. Are they actually Christian? And I, I don't mean because of the, the hypostatic union, but other things they believe, I would say, actually put them outside of the faith. Uh, I looked up, um, this was a website, it, it's uh, for the Ethiopian uh, Orthodox Church in the Western Hemisphere, but I would assume that that's the similar same beliefs to the Ethiopian Church based in Ethiopia, and they say things like, uh, for Holy Communion, we believe that this sacrament is an unbloody sacrifice offered for our, our salvation. So already there, it's like, what do you, what do you mean when you, uh, you say offered for our salvation? Because obviously the Mass happens repeatedly, and we need to make sure that Christ's sacrifice isn't repetitive. That's what Hebrew says. Um, 
the, the Old Testament sacrifice repetitive and therefore could not take away sins. Christ's sacrifice once actually takes away sins. Uh, continuing to read, um, uh, where was it? Uh, in brief, the church's faith is that our Lord Jesus Christ is truly and actually present in the sacrament of the Eucharist. The faithful partake of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, get spiritual food, which helps them to grow in grace, receive remission of sins, abide in Christ, and Christ abides in them, and it, it continues on. So they do believe that you're receiving remission of sins through that sacrifice, that repetitive sacrifice. Um, and then to add on top of it, uh, they say that before receiving Holy Eucharist, the soul must be free from sins and washed in the water of repentance. Um, what is necessary to prepare the body to receive the Eucharist is purity of heart and the works of faith, love, gentleness, and mercy. Outward fasting alone does not prepare the body with honor. So this, this bears all the marks of a legalistic religion. Um, these are, a lot of this would be actually the same reasons why we would say Roman Catholicism isn't, isn't Christian. So to be saying, oh, these, these Christians over here, we should start uh, looking at their, um, their cultural symbols and trying to import them so that people feel uh, that they can join Christianity. I would be pointing them away from this. Uh, not necessarily pointing away from their culture, but pointing them away from these these Christians. This is at best sub-Orthodox and at worst uh, a false gospel. Um, and we should be evangelizing these sorts of people, not encouraging other people to look at them. And that's a, that's a major problem as we go on. Yeah, he's assuming there, there's a difference in using kind of a collective term of, you know, Christians around the world, it, it, at least in terms yeah. of how they identify and then when we're actually talking about, you know, who is Orthodox and who isn't, and he doesn't seem to make that distinction here at all. That's not to say that um, Ethiopian Orthodox Christians were always heretics. Right. Like, for example, I did find that, um, what was it? Um, to quote from Wikipedia, in, in 1534, a cleric of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, Michael the Deacon, met with Martin Luther and affirmed the Augsburg Confession as a good creed. So uh, at least this person, unless he just didn't understand what he was reading, he saw the Augsburg Confession, which would have denied a lot of the, the statements I just read um, and uh, called it a good creed. So I'm not saying that this was perpetually some sort of uh, heretical church, but uh, to point to people, to call them Christians and not distinguish today and uh, be pointing people to the, their, their cultural symbols. Oh, we need to import that. Look at these Christians over here. Uh, I would, I would be very, I would not do that. Yeah, I agree. That's drawn too in some of these ancient icons here. This is the first monastery in the world. Egyptians invented monasticism. So a lot of the European monks who, uh, like Benedict and all the mother cats in Ireland and all that, they learned that stuff from Egypt, from African brothers. This is the oldest monastery in the world, St. Anthony, known as the father of monasticism. And, uh, and, and then, and then this is a, from a monastery, a different monastery, but uh, I love seeing this example of contextualization because you know the Ankh is a symbol in ancient Egyptian uh, tradition. It's probably the most common symbol that shows up. And uh, this was from a Christian monastery, so it's clear that there was Christians who was appropriating those symbols and saying that they're going to use it to represent uh, the cross because the Ankh means life, right? 
And so again, I'm going back to a lot of my Native American brothers and sisters who want to, who, who are evangelical believers who want to do Christian sweat lodges and Christian sage burning and smudging and Christian uh, totem poles. And then here comes somebody saying, oh, you can't do that. That's pagan. Oh, for real? You, you going to put up your Christmas tree this, this Christmas? You know, yeah. yeah, I think we got the point there. Um, yeah, so for the way I see this, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, um, Using comparing the Ankh and the Christmas tree, I don't think is a very good comparison um, in terms of the pagan origins of the Ankh. It has very strong pagan origins in Egyptian religious worship. Um, if you look at some of the paintings that are done by Egyptians, you see some of the gods holding the Ankh. And, um, and to compare that to the Christmas tree, I think is a category error. The Christmas tree really doesn't have the, the roots of paganism. It's very doubtful of where it came from. Um, but even if you're going to adapt, you know, there, there are sometimes symbols that do adapt with a culture. Um, for instance, the swastika, you know, that actually means something good in its original meaning, but because of its um, adoption by the Nazi party and its propagation and identification with this, with the, uh, the philosophy behind their, uh, their political party, it's become a bad thing to have a swastika. So no one would ever post that now. So there's a difference between things that change over time and things that really haven't in terms of their origin and association. And I think that's kind of a a problem here. And and trying to somehow, he's trying to force these these cultural norms. It's like, okay, it's almost like we have to force these cultural norms into Christianity. And it's somehow bad if we reject them regardless of where they came from or their close associations with paganism, you know, sweat lodges and, and sage burning in native American culture was, uh, would be closely associated with paganisms. Um, so you have to be careful with that and you have to kind of take that on a case by case, uh, basis in my book. Yeah. Uh, we, at our church, we occasionally watch missionary videos and, uh, one sticks out in my mind. I think it was Vietnam. I don't remember exactly which country, but it was one in the, uh, the Southeast Asian regions where, uh, they had actually given up gongs in religion in religious services. And the missionaries were a little bit confused or didn't quite understand what, what's wrong with the gong gong. And it's the, the, the people said like, no, you don't understand. This is, this is part of our old way of life, our old religious worship. It's right. so associated with that. I don't even want to have it in a religious service, period. You know, right. they, don't, they don't want that connotation whatsoever, which is perfectly understandable. I'd actually, I'd like to propose a little bit of a, a thought experiment or example here uh, that will hopefully illustrate the problem. Um, suppose that China in the next 20 years conquers half the world and now America is subjugated to China. Uh, they've become the dominant culture and say even that there's a, uh, a Constantine-like event where now all of a sudden you've got a Christian person in charge of uh, the Chinese empire. Um, and the Chinese, I don't believe, maybe they do, have uh, uh, don't have Christian Christmas trees. Would, would it make sense to you that for people to start uh, like picketing or, or having talks about, hey, you Chinese need to be okay with the Christmas tree because it's part of American culture and people like associate that with Christianity. You need, you need to do that. Otherwise Christian or otherwise uh, Americans won't want to come to Christianity. 
uh, I imagine the Chinese at that point would be like, why are you trying to enforce this symbol that's not even the Bible here? You, you know what I mean? Like, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily, I would, I, well, I, let's, I don't even use Christmas trees to be perfectly honest, I don't like them. But uh, even if I did, I wouldn't try to enforce people, oh, you've got to use a Christmas tree somewhere else, regardless of whether I'm in the dominant culture or not in the dominant culture. Um, and it would feel weird to to say to people, oh, if you don't use Christmas trees, if people aren't used to that, people aren't going to come to Christ. That would seem inc uh, incredibly odd. It's like, well, what does that matter? It doesn't have anything necessarily to do with Christianity. You need to preach the message is what I would hope people would think. Right. Um, so it's, it's the exact same in this scenario to, to say, oh, we need to import the onk so people are more familiar with African Christianity so they come to Christ. It's like, no, that doesn't that doesn't smell right. So I started thinking about something, you know, the topic of meat being sacrificed mm -hmm. to idols, and then you know being purchased secondhand because it was cheaper, and how we have that that freedom, that Christian liberty mm -hmm. to use that because there's no power in that meat. It was offered to a fake god, you know. But what were the new believers wary of? Those who came out of that culture, they were extra, you know, careful because they, they felt convicted, because they were importing some part of their old pagan religion into Christianity. So in that case, though it was not necessarily anything they had to be concerned with because it was just meat, they were still ultra-conservative about what facets they brought over from their pagan religion, because they did not want to conflate the two. They wanted to so leave all that so far behind and focus solely on, you know, Christianity as it was granted, you know, they didn't have the new Testament as we have it today. They, you know, certain letters being circulated at certain times from then beyond, but the teaching still existed and the oral tradition of that time still existed. So, but the point, you know, being there is they did not want to incorporate anything from their prior pagan religion. Now, again, the meat itself was no, no issue. But say they somebody else said, well, and let's also incorporate, you know, the the altar where this was sacrificed to a false god, and we'll all sit around the altar and we'll eat this meat here, and that'll be our our act of worship. You know, at that point, somebody somewhere would have hopefully gone, whoa, no, that's uh, that's going too far. Cut that out. And as it stood, they didn't even want the meat because they were so concerned that it might be too far. You know, and that's where, you know, thankfully there was an intervention again saying, no, no, you got some Christian liberty there. For the Christmas tree, I don't know too many people that really associate that with Christianity. They tend to associate it more with Santa Claus than anything else yeah. and with gift giving. And it's a corporate symbol. I associate it with time to go to Walmart more than they associate yeah. it with time to open your Bible. So if somebody takes the Christmas tree, again, with you know, like you talked about, the origins are a little hazy. Some people will say it's this, some people say that. Regardless, if you're going to take that and try to somehow appropriate that and make that into a Christian symbol that represents Christ, I think you're in dangerous territory because scripture never uses that as a symbol. You know, it, it never talks about anything like that. If you're going to worship Christ, do it in accordance with the word of God, not in accordance with your fanciful whims of your culture. Yeah, and so if you want a Christmas tree and you want to decorate it and you want to have your family around with you and just have fun with that, again, as a sign of the corporate season, 
okay, nothing wrong with that. I love decorating. It's something we do every year. We hang up the ornaments. I do it. My wife does it. My kids do it. You know, and it's a family event. But again, we're not doing that as a reasonable act of service to Christ. We're doing it as just simply our family enjoying putting something up there. And it doesn't have any pagan roots in our home any more than my kids going trick-or-treating from house to house to get candy means they're out looking for spirits to stir up. You know, there's just, there's not that root and that connection in how that's being practiced there. It's a purely commercialized idea in how it's practiced in most places today. And you even see in um, Paul in that same passage where he talks about meat being offered to idols, he also warns them. And and it almost seems like there may have been a problem with some Christians who saw they had liberty and they went too far. They said, hey, Paul's like, hey, don't be eating at those feasts. You, you know, you might just be eating, right? Eating is great. The meat is fine, but you're participating in an event that is explicitly pagan. You know, so he had to guard against both extremes of appro- not appropriating culture, but also not uh, going too far in your liberty. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I just think, you know, again, when it comes to the onk, Jesus didn't die in an onk. Right. Know, he died on a cross. And we see the cross is what's mentioned in scripture multiple times, you know, that is the only symbol that we see, you know, tying directly to Christ. So to take another religion that is purely pagan and a symbol that is purely pagan and trying to incorporate that in, oh, well, it means life. So we can go ahead and use that now too. That's no different than what Roman Catholicism has done with a lot of their practices where it's pagan cultures that they've incorporated in after they were out overtaking lands and they're just putting a Christian mask on it and saying, look, this is your acceptable act of service and worship to God. No, no, it is not at all. It is still paganism with a Christian mask. Take the mask off. What are you left with? Paganism. So in that case, don't try to appropriate something into Christianity if it had pure pagan ties, because as soon as you take that mask off, all you've done is blended paganism with Christianity. And that's not safe at all. Let's put it this way. If I were, if I were back in the, if it is true that Christmas trees come from purely pagan roots and I were back at that time where that was becoming a thing, I would be saying the same thing. Hey, we should not be doing this. This is is not good. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe in the Ethiopian context, uh, there, there, there is no association with, with paganism anymore, period. Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad. But um, just import it into our culture where I look at that and I immediately see, you know, ancient Egypt. You know, that's what I'm used to. Uh, should you really be importing something with known pagan origins, uh, with pagan associations? I would say no, don't do it. It's it's not it's not needed. The Bible doesn't command us anywhere to to do this thing. Nowhere do we see an example of the apostles being like, "What cultural symbols can we import to make the, the people that we're witnessing to believe easier?" So don't do it. Again, are we going to set up an altar for a sacrifice no. No, in our no, house no, no, today? No, 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 no. But hey, like you know, I got my boy Phil Jackson on the West Side in the house church, bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ, spinning records and breakdancing, and spinning on their head, worshiping Jesus. So you know, we're, hey, we can all worship God, all tribes, all tongues. So I just thought this was dope. And- yeah, it, he obviously doesn't hold the regular p- principle yeah, of worship. I'm reminded of First Corinthians <laughs> when they talk about the tongues and everybody speaking tongues and people coming by thinking that they're crazy. 
Yeah. It's like, hey, they're all worshiping Jesus. It doesn't matter. Um, no. But Nahab and Abihu found that out the hard way in Leviticus 10. You know, they, they thought they could go in there and do whatever they wanted, and they got fried, literally. Yeah. So I couldn't tell if he meant that in the context of a church or was just saying, like, in somebody's house. Uh, but, yeah, worship is to be taken seriously. Um, not saying that they're necessarily not taking it seriously. But um, yeah, you're right, Sean. In, in be... terms of it, there is a difference in in terms of corporate worship versus private worship. It's going to yeah. be different. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'd like to also mention. I mean, I don't know if you guys have been to a Messianic Jew service. I have not. No. You know, if you I've see... known Messianic Jews. They used to come to our church. Yeah. So, <laughs> so really. Oh uh, yes, we we had yeah we had some back in the day um, that uh, obviously have left. But yes, we, okay. so I, I have some experience with them. So, you know, with one of the practices they do is dancing. You know, they have the kind of like there's a worship team in typical modern churches, you know, and get up and there might be a guitar or the piano. And like we have a piano in our church. My last church had drums, piano and guitar, not in a band sense, but just in multitude of instruments. And, you know, that's, so that's what we're used to. And that's played. And, you know, we sing along with that. Now, they do dancing. And it's not erratic and uncontrolled dancing. It is kind of taking their more, you know, Jewish ancestry and roots there, where dancing was an act of worship to God as well. We see it in scripture. And I didn't see that as you shouldn't be dancing. Now, I'll tell you what, I don't have any rhythm, so I'm not going to get up and dance. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't see that as how dare you, you shouldn't be doing that. Why? Because it was, there's a scriptural warrant for it. We mm -hmm. see it in there mm -hmm. and it was controlled. It was orderly, you know, and that you could tell that there was pure joy and purity of heart as they were worshiping God in that, you know, in that dance routine they have, you know, and again, I'm not talking dance routine like you might see on, you know, some TikTok video, but you know, it, their historic and traditional cultural dance, no problem with that at all. If you have somebody else, you know, that, maybe during a service, you know, is taking something scriptural, but giving it in, I, I don't even want to come up with an example, but again, it needs to be warranted by scripture itself and it, all things need to be done orderly in an orderly fashion. So if you have people out there spinning on their head, you know, and with if that was in a corporate worship service, I would say, that might, if they are all going crazy, having a good time, as he puts it in there, I think that's not orderly. That is disorderly. Mm -hmm. That's everybody doing their own thing. That's using their culture and saying, you know what? Our culture is this. We enjoy it. It's legit. Let's go ahead and run with it. That is, that right there is antithetical to the scriptural warrant and mandate mm -hmm. of how we are supposed to worship God in accordance with his prescription. Unless your church comes together there and says, okay, we're going to have a portion of the worship where A, dancing is appropriate, and B, break dancing, then um, to just be sort of spontaneous like that, I don't know. Uh, I do think he probably, well, I don't know what he would believe about in a church service, but. Yeah, it seems like he was talking about it in the context yeah. of worship, because that's what he's been talking about this whole time, like Christian churches and Christian worship and integrating these symbols into their worship, like well, monasteries. He, and He might. He might not even make a distinction between like the corporate worship of the church and just worship, worship. And, yeah, private worship. And Everything might, might be that might be where the problem comes in. Yeah.
storm of circumstances that happened. The gospel went from Jerusalem and it went in every direction. It was going, it was going into Asia. It went along the Silk Road. It reached, it reached as far as the Pacific Ocean in China already by the 600s. It went all the way down in the Indian Ocean, South India already in the third century. It was going in every, it went into Africa. It went along the Nile River. It went into Europe. It was going everywhere. But then the West rose up and said, well, we're the best Christians. And if you're not a Christian like us, you're not really a Christian. Then these Christians over here who were going in direction were oppressed by their Christian brethren. Then they were doubly oppressed when Islam came around. They became minorities in their own land. So their missionary efforts were really hampered. So sometimes I just think like, man, if history would have went different and if the West, Western church hadn't did what it did, my ancestors in West Africa might actually have heard the gospel from another African who made their way from Nubia and Ethiopia going West. But in- Who cares? That's not the point. The point is the gospel breaks these barriers. And whether or not the gospel came from the white guys in the West or, you know, the, the Africans in the, uh, in the, in the Roman church and then the Africans in the East, it doesn't matter. The gospel is the gospel that should not matter where it comes from or its origin or what people group it comes from. Um, and, and again, he thinks that the cultural association with the spreading of biblical teaching is a problem. Not necessarily, as long as they're teaching the gospel pure and simple and uh, that's what's going to break those barriers. Um, and he almost makes it sound like um, slave-owning Christians were the first to uh, first introduction of the gospel, um, and that that's a problem. It doesn't matter where the gospel comes from. Um, he he's st- setting up these cultural appropriations above um, the pure power of the gospel. Well, oh, go ahead. Uh, you go. No, so. Even with that, too, he talks about, you know, again, tying it back to slavery. You know, oh, the, you know, the, they've come in, they've taken us on the ships and on the boats. And, you know, that's the argument we hear a lot. But that didn't start, you know, with the white man. You know, that started right. with Africans selling, the, the people that they have conquered within Africa, selling their, their own kind, so to speak, you know, but they would have viewed as outsiders there, selling them to the Muslims, you know, and the Arab nations. So if it started in Muslim, you know, an Arab, Muslim and Arab nations, and it wasn't until way later that, you know, the, the white man came in and started doing it's because they saw the lucrative profit being made over all of this time. And again, no justification for that whatsoever. Horrific act in human history. But the point is slavery, by the time that happened, you know, that by time the colonizers came, it was already a practice that had been in place for hundreds of years. It was not something new, like the white man came in and just stirred things up all of a sudden started taking people. It just, the only difference is which way were they going once they were taken, sold by other people in Africa, and what were they being told after they were taken? So, in this case, yeah, while there's no justification for slavery and for purchasing another human being, God used that to spread his word and to spread the gospel. And it's not like these people there, they, you know, God is sitting like, well, if only that hadn't happened, I would have gotten that person. You know, God uses and has ordained everything in human history since the beginning of time. We don't understand it, but it's not our place to question it. You know, all we need to do is just be faithful to God here and now, learn from our past and move forward. So, but yeah, all that to say, 
God is not bound by any of this. And God hasn't lost a single person in light of that. The only way we can be faithful to scripture is saying, even with all of that, that was all in the plan, and God utilized those normal means and even people's evil actions that they will be held accountable for, utilize that for the furtherance of the gospel. So I do, I do apart from all of this uh, that's been in the, um, in the cultural milieu here for a little bit, uh, I do actually try not to be Westocentric in my Christianity. Uh, and I don't want to say Western Christianity is, is dominant purely because, well, look, look actually at the history of Western Christianity, right? And I'm using Christianity in a broad sense here, not in a truly Christian sense. Uh, look at, look at uh, the medieval era. The visible church is very, very corrupt. And um, uh, I don't think a lot of people in the, at least in the, the visible church were necessarily saved. Um, so me personally, I was looking into Christians in other areas, like the Nestorian church in um, uh, China, which I believe started in the 6th century. They're called Nestorians, although they didn't actually believe in uh, the beliefs we would associate with Nestorianism. So I was looking into them and uh, trying to discern, well, did they have the same gospels made? Do they believe the same? Like, are these my Christian brothers? You know, I'm not necessarily inclined to be Westocentric. Uh, I think it's it's... It's how are you defining what Christianity is? Like, oh, Western Christianity said we're the best Christians. Uh, so I, I listen to a, a lot of what are so-called Western theologians because I think they're right. I, I listen to John Calvin, read John Calvin or whomever, you know, John Owen, because I think they were really good articulates of scriptural truth, not because, ah, they're the West, they're got to be right, you know. Yep. And again, it's this cultural appropriation and, and your culture is the standard. It's not necessarily the theology behind it that whether or not they're right or not should be looked at over their culture. Yeah, so if it's it. Western, it's, it, you know, it might yeah. be right, but you know what? We got to be really cautious then because they're Western. Yeah. Let's that's put it, not the attitude. Let's put it this way. I have a very low view of Thomas Aquinas, who is considered a great theologian in the West, right? Not to say that everything Thomas Aquinas said was wrong. Obviously, I believe some of his, his uh, discussion of like divine simplicity was correct, but uh, otherwise, I have a very low view of Thomas Aquinas. It, just because it's, he's a Western theologian doesn't make him good in my book. Right. I don't think it necessarily follows that uh, a majority of Christians, true Christians, actually think this way. Right. That down the road, just like when people think of Christmas trees, they don't think of paganism. They just think of Christianity. That that might be the case for the Ankh and for Ethiopian sun images and for totem poles and all these other cultural institutions that we have. That as the people of God, as we reclaim them for Jesus Christ, that they will fulfill their intended purpose that God intended for them all along. Thank you very much. Yikes. Yikes. So he, he's basically saying that pagan, uh, pagan symbols that were used in pagan worship were somehow intended to be used for worship of Jesus. Is that, did I hear that right? You heard that's, that right. All that's right. what he said. Yeah. Uh, we've, yeah. Already, we've already discussed the, the, the symbols. Um, I, I, I will just like to add, like, I was actually more okay with the Ankh than I was with the, the sun uh, thing that he mentioned 
because that did seem very explicitly pagan. It, it has a, it's a sun with a face, you know? Um, well, I don't know. Like a sun god almost. Well, I, I could, I, I probably should have looked up exactly what it was before the, the podcast, but it did, it did just scream of paganism there. It's like, why would we be introducing that in? I know in medieval art, you will see the, the sun and moon have faces. I'm not necessarily saying that's okay either, but, um, I mean, if you're, if you're going to be, you know, if you had people who were following the second commandment, there wouldn't be images at all. Yeah. Well, that's, that, that is another major problem. I suspect he does, because of the way he's talking, I suspect he doesn't have a problem with the Eastern iconography. Yeah. um, It doesn't appear to be. We know already, you know, how God feels about that. So he says (laughs) that God made all, that all these happen, that we need to reclaim them reclaim these pagan things which mind you started within paganism so it's not reclaiming anything it would be appropriating something but when it comes to using something outside of what god has said to use we already see what happens Does golden calf come to mind should we now create golden <laughs> calves and say we're reclaiming it and using a golden calf as, as acceptable symbols within christianity no why? Because God has already said how he feels about something like that and implementing pagan symbols, you know, and fixtures into, you know, the, I don't want to say Christianity because they were, you know, Jewish at the time, but into worship of him, who he's the same God regardless of what we call it. So if he destroyed that, he's not, certainly not sitting around saying, oh, but thank goodness he reclaimed these ones. Just leave that golden calf aside and and leave that furnace that you throw babies into. Leave that aside too. But all these other pagan ones, yeah, let's bring those in. Thank goodness you reclaimed those. No, it's there to be rejected just the same. Yep. Value systems, right? Um, and so in my culture, in North St. Louis, um, it's more common for a father to not be in the house than to be in the house. Well, that's we have some cultural sanctification work that we need to do. And we can just say... Well, that's our culture. That's how we do. Like, well, that's not a good thing. And we're seeing the ramifications of Why? that. Why? But, you know, at the same time, many cultures don't value punctuality. You know, is that a, is that a sin issue? Is it just different, right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, seriously, like, uh, to, to throw another kind of spectrum on here, David Livermore in his book, Cultural Intelligence, you know, talks about category with. And... Uh, and all of us have these categories of good, bad, and different. <laughs> right? Like, good. Uh, you know, uh, give someone help when they need help. Right? Give someone food when they're hungry. Every, every culture would say that's good. Uh, bad, like killing people. Every culture say that's bad. And then different, like take your shoes off when you come in someone's house. Right? Or when you go visit someone's house, bring them a gift. Or, uh, you know, when you see someone, kiss them on the cheek or give them a hug, whatever. There's all these different examples of things that are just different. Um, but, you know, he talks about how for some of us, we would maybe say that the different category is like, is like that big. And the good-bad category is actually a lot smaller than we tend to think it is. Um, but some of us have a more narrow definition of different, and that is actually, uh, we, th- we tend to think lots more things than actually are are just black and white, good or bad, and actually more of that we might think are actually just different. We just think it's like arranged marriages, you know, versus love marriages. Is that good, bad, or is it different? I would say it's different, but probably a lot of us in our culture will be like, no, no, arranged marriage, that's terrible. 
You should be, you should be in love. You should be, you know, should be your own choice, like a Disney movie, right? Um, but who said who? You know, like you have arranged marriage. So, um, but the last thing I want to say is um, the the practical. I, I, so I think this is a helpful, you know, theoretical basis to stand on. The practical tip I would add to this is that the process of cultural sanctification and the process in which the Holy Spirit is guiding us and showing us and leading us what is good, what is bad, what's just different, you know, what do we need, what can be translatable, but what are things that need to be jettisoned uh, that are in conflict with teaching of Scripture, that is a decision that should be made by indigenous leaders. That's a decision that should be made in-house. That's not something that someone else should come in and say, oh yeah, I have no idea about your culture, I know nothing about your traditions, and I just read a book about you, and I took a Rosetta Stone class, and I know everything about you, and I, and I took perspectives, and so I've come in and I've said, I, I know now what is, you know, what's good and translatable and what's not for you, so thank God for me. Um, no, but that's how missions is done, more often than I'd like to think about. So he talks about indigenous leaders need to be making decisions for for what is good and bad in a culture. And I think there there can be some help in that if you are a missionary and you are going to a culture and you're wanting to learn more about that culture. However, this goes back to what we were saying before, the ultimate absolute universal truth of scripture is going to break those cultures and whatever barriers are in conflict with it. And so you know, what if you have a culture that's full of cannibals? Do you just say, well, let's let the indigenous leaders figure that one out? No, that's pretty obvious that that's in violation of scripture. We're not to kill our fellow men, uh, murder our fellow men and eat them. You know, or we're not to commit violent acts against men unnecessarily. So there is, you know, there are these things that we can come into that are based on the universal truth of scripture that we can uh, preach to a culture as we're preaching the gospel. And the gospel is going to transform how these people think. We don't want to rely solely on or primarily primarily on um, indigenous leaders who are going to have pagan influences anyways and probably are not going to be saved, especially if you're coming to a culture that's never been reached, right? So that, that's not a standard you want to use when you're doing missions. It's, um, a, it's an either-or fallacy. Yeah. Um, obviously, right. we, we, we do acknowledge 100% that there are uh, basically cultural missionaries that went in and was like, no, you guys have to always listen to me. And they really didn't know what they're talking about. Right. Obviously that what you said is, is true there, but it's not, then we go to the opposite extreme and say, okay, it's always the indigenous people that get to choose these things or not. No, because the missionary hopefully, but should be um, wiser in what the scripture should actually permit and deny. So we, I would hope that the, the cultural leaders, if they're Christians, would want to listen to what the person is saying because he's more likely to know. Um, and I, I, will, I will give uh, Dr. Bontu a little bit of credit. The, the earlier part of uh, the clip we were just listening to with the, the good, bad, and the different, how people draw that, that is, that is absolutely uh, true. Uh, not everything that's, that's being said here is 100% false. Right. We, we do disagree with uh, a lot of the application that's he's mixing made. he's mixing a lot of good things but then also mixing an error with his that's where the discernment comes in you know as but, an example yeah. with that well when i went to ukraine out there here wedding ring goes on the left hand mm. over there right wedding ring goes on the right hand 
So in order to blend in with that culture and avoid any mistakes or them wondering, we took our wedding rings and we put them on our right hand. Why? Because that falls under that different category. And there's nothing wrong if they're getting married and Christians are getting married and that wedding ring goes on that right hand. Why? Because we're not told in scripture wedding rings have to go on a left hand or even anything about wedding rings. That's something that was, you know, totally separate. So yeah, we, we fell in line with the culture there and we embraced what their culture did because like the old saying, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans, but there's certain times when that is not going to apply. And that is when it comes down to the explicits and specifics of scripture. Truth comes forth in repetition. And so, uh, and so we have a song that's two lines long and we sing it over and over and over again. The problem comes though when we value one over the other and we use terms like high liturgy. I hate that term. Like, what does that mean? Like, low liturgy? Like, you're, you know, you're, you're, more words made your, made your praise get higher up to Jesus, and ours didn't get that high. And so, but we have all these value judgments that we place. And so, the same thing, like, is there a place for, uh, you know, universal belief system that's rooted in Scripture? Of course. Um, you know, the idea, uh, the gospel message that Jesus died and he rose again, that he's fully God and fully human, but there are different ways to express that. Maybe Jesus is someone's great chief, maybe Jesus is the great ancestor. Right. Uh, and, and talking about creeds, uh, just one more thing. Uh, there's a really good example of that. Even at the beginning of, um, of the Constantinian era, when Christianity is taking on a lot more Roman flavor. Um, again, as I mentioned, the Council of Nicaea, the doctrine that Jesus is fully equal to God. He's homoousios. I thought that was a really good thing to say because I think it's true. I think it, I, I believe it. I think Arius was wrong. I think Jesus is fully God, and that uh, that there's that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are uh, are three persons in one essence. And so, the problem happened though at Nicaea was that to get to your point is that um, homoousia started becoming this like kind of really rallying cry and banner of orthodoxy, and it was fine. I mean, it's yeah, he is the same essence, but you know, homoousios isn't a word that comes up in the Bible. It's, it comes from, again, Hellenistic uh, Platonic thought that the people use to make sense of the divine mystery of Jesus being the same essence. So that's fine for you, but don't impose it on everyone else, as long as we're saying the same thing. And a good example of this is um, Ephraim the Syrian. So Ephraim the Syrian is the... I think that's enough there. Um, yeah. So there's some truth in what he's saying. Yes, it, there is going to be different ways of expression of the gospel message in, um, in different cultures. Um, but you're still, he's still back to the same problem, right? He's still saying that Christians need to have some sort of cultural standard and appropriation that they need to identify with along with their Christianity. Like he talks about in Africa, you know, some, some cultures might reference the great spirit or the great ancestor. That's, well, that, I mean, that's explicitly pagan. If yeah, you look, I mean, that, that is not something to be relative about. Yeah, sure. There are things to be relative about, but to say, well, maybe uh, uh, Jesus is the great ancestor or the great spirit. Uh, the great ancestor, especially that that's like, obviously not correct because he's not an ancestor in that sense. Um yeah, uh, and it, it's funny, right? Because earlier, and you can still see it uh, on the board, although it's not in the shot right now, he, he talked about syncretism and how that's not okay. But I would say that's an element of syncretism. Oh, right? yeah. That you, you have mixed core truths. Um, and, and that, I, I think, is the fundamental problem. He's writing a lot of what he affirms, but what he's saying actually is, is in a different category. He's absolutely right. We shouldn't be imposing cultural norms. But some of the stuff he's saying isn't cultural. It's actually gotten to the core 
Um, and as to uh, whether homoousia should be new, used, if, if Dr. Bantu thinks that it's based on Hellenistic logic and thus not reflective of true logic, like obviously we would say that there's an uh, element of Hellenistic logic that is true, but the way he's using it seems to indicate that he doesn't believe that it's true. Um, if, if we're using, if we come up with uh, homoousius based on Hellenistic logic, and that's not true, I don't want to use the term. I don't care if it's helpful for me. If it's not based in reality, right. I don't want to use it. So uh, I'd rather him, him take a side here and be like, no, homoousius just is wrong or um, there's something else, you know? But if it's based on Hellenistic logic and therefore relative, I, I don't want to articulate it that way. I'd rather articulate it a better way. Well, let's be real though. That word is not in our culture right now. If I went walking down the yeah. street and said that to somebody, they'd look, they'd look at, at you like crazy. I had something grown out of my forehead. <laughs> right. like, what are you talking about? That is not, you know, indicative of our culture, but we still use it. And that is a term we have appropriated from a totally different language. Yeah. Why? Because it is descriptive of a very important truth. So if we can appropriate something from a different culture and bring it into ours, because there's no a better way to do it. That's not us, you know, cowering before somebody else or another culture imposing something on us. It's us, again, recognizing a limitation that we have and, you know, bringing something on board. You know, it, as Sean said, if that's strictly, you know, somebody else's logic and, you know, a thought in there and it's not true and it's just rooted in philosophy, yeah, reject it by all means. But that's not the case. You know, it is a very clear and concise wording that, again, would have to be translated for us and then be described using our descriptive words in English. And whether somebody wants to use that as a rally cry or they want to just repeat, you know, multiple English words over, you know, or mm -hmm. as a way to describe it, I don't care because the same truth is being stated there. And I think that's what he's trying to get at here. I think I think what he he's trying to say is true. You know, there there is a sense where we can communicate the same thing differently, mm -hmm. but he's still associating whatever truth is tagged to that word with that culture, and thus thinks it's not necessarily good. Um, so yeah, there, again, case, there's, that, there's that. Yeah, in this case, it is good. Absolutely. I mean, it. like. Like you mentioned before, Trinity is not mentioned in Scripture. Yeah, three, uh, one. The principle is there, but you know we we don't use we don't see that on the sacred pages of Scripture, but we use it to help us to codify it and understand it and communicate it in a simplistic way. So he did not like the word homoousia, so he would contextualize it in his own way according to his culture. But, yeah, I feel like it would always be cheating to ask you what we should do with this information? <laughs> what, what should we do with it? <laughs> take it out. Yeah. It. You share it. I mean, how many of you have heard the name Augustine before? How many of you have heard the name uh, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, Martin Luther? Uh, how many of you have heard the name Baba the Great? How many of you have heard the name Narsai? How many of you have heard the name Shenouda of a tree? How many of you have heard the name Benjamin of Alexandria? Like, this is what I'm saying. That is white supremacy right there. The fact that all of us are more familiar with Western Christian history than we are with African and, and non-Western Christian history. All right. That yeah. Which, uh, 
as we were talking beforehand, Augustine was an African yeah. uh, theologian, and so was Athanasius of Alexandria, both of whom were champions yeah. of the faith and were Orthodox. Yeah. So the reason why we know those big names is because they are actually big, big names in the world of uh, Christian history. Um, I, I, I was able to look up two of the names he mentioned that were um, African theologians, or well, one of them ends up being a Mesopotamian theologian. I, I couldn't find the other two. I might not have been spelling it right, but um, so the one, uh, Babai the Great, um, I, I don't know why exactly he would expect us to know him. Um, uh, he doesn't have the same view of the of Christology as, as we do. He's not purely Nestorian, but he does, like, for example, again, I think this was quoting from Wikipedia, uh, he uh, couldn't accept expressions like, or he could accept expressions like Christ died and the son died, but not the word died, even not the word died in the flesh, because he, uh, he didn't like the, the idea that God in any sense suffered. Um, so we don't, we don't quite agree with that. So I, I'm confused as to why I would, I would therefore know him. He doesn't appear to be a super influential person in church history, and nor do I agree with his Christology. So I don't, I don't know why I would necessarily have been expected to know him. Um, the, the other one, uh, it was the last person on the list. I forget, uh, I forget the name. Marcion? I don't think so. Marson. It, was, it was the one that ends up being the Pope of the uh, Coptic church. And he was Pope during the, basically the Muslim conquest. And he, um, he ended up uh, defending Christianity during that time. And all right, to be fair, that, that does seem like it's a, uh, an important figure in, in uh, church history. Although I, I could turn that around. Do you remember the name of the uh, Christian patriarch? Uh, of Constantinople when the Muslims invaded, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. No, uh, I could at least tell you the name of the Pope that launched the First Crusade, Urban II. Uh, I couldn't tell you any of the other popes that launched the Crusade. Like th those names aren't going to necessarily be as uh, as big. And I could turn around for theologians. Do most people know uh, people like Boethius or Don Scotus, who nope. were theologians in the West? Mm -hmm. um, I'm only vaguely aware of who, who those people John are. Quincy Adams, not the president. Not the president. The one that Charles Spurgeon used as mandatory reading for his students. Yeah, yeah. mandatory reading by Charles Spurgeon. Yeah. But most people today have no idea who he is. Yeah, so uh, to pick the, the smaller names like that, when we do know people like Athanasius and Augustine because they did have large impacts, that's, I don't, I, that's, that, I don't know that that's quite fair because I feel like you could you could pick from anyone. Do you know any uh, Chinese theologians? I'm sure they're good, but um, it's just not something that's going to be in the mainstream. Uh, it hasn't influenced us nearly as much, and I don't know that they've had a big impact on church history or as big as the big names that we do know. John Calvin had a huge impact. Martin Luther had a huge impact. These people might have had impact, but is it shocking that we don't necessarily know them off the top of our head? I don't know that that should be the case. Right. Yeah, you could really you could pretty much apply that to any culture. Yeah, yeah. You hear the argument today. Why are the founding fathers and everybody from this time of America all, you know, old white men? You know, 
Well, because they came from England. Look, well, yeah, <laughs> where they came from, how that culture was, it's to be expected. That's kind of what you're going to see there, and who would have made the biggest impact at the time that our nation was founded. You know, similarly, throughout history, certain people came from certain areas. But again, you know, Augustine and Athanasius, two prime examples right there. They're not all just a bunch of old white men. You know, so to say that that's all we're looking at and the only people we recognize is really just a false statement right off the bat. You know, there are going to be a lot more that are going to fit that mold because that's where a lot of stuff came from. And during a time when there's transition going on and furtherance and revivals. So yes, we're going to see more people that would fit that physical mold, but that's not all that we identify with or recognize as movers and shakers because there are other people from other areas and other cultures that we do recognize that we've demonstrated right here in this podcast. But yes, the majority are probably going to fit that image because that just simply is where a lot more was happening at the time. Right. 